Well, welcome to Faith. Welcome to our, uh, our message series on the hard teachings of Jesus. Uh, we, uh, we're in a series that kind of expose uh, believers and disciples to Jesus as being one full of not just grace, but also truth. Uh, we've been learning that while Jesus attracted and captivated followers, he also confused and he repelled them. Uh, we've been learning that while Jesus rescues and saves, while he restores and heals, while he comforts and revives, he also confronts and he divides. Jesus' words cut and expose sin and rebellion, and he exposes the dark motives of people's hearts. And in this, Jesus is the controversial Jesus. Uh, yes, Jesus is winsome. Jesus is humble. He's meek. He's approachable. Uh, anyone who genuinely is seeking uh, to understand and get to know him, uh, he, he welcomes that. But Jesus will push people to either embrace and love him or reject and hate him. With Jesus, he doesn't allow you to be neutral. So we've captured some of the contrasts and challenges in our scripture reading today from Matthew 10. Uh, where Jesus is giving instructions to his 12 disciples on the mission. Uh, and what we find that's really compressed in this one chapter is really the missional directives of, uh, of the kingdom for disciples. And first it's to the 12 apostles, but as it continues to expand, we find that it's really given to all disciples uh, to bring the gospel to all the world, to all the Gentiles, not just to uh, Israel. And what we find here is uh, these intensive instructions that are often hard uh, to receive, but they are good hard teachings, and it's worth considering. Uh, by the way, I'll be standing up here at the end of the service uh, because there might be questions that you have and uh, concerning some of these hard teachings that weren't covered and you are raising certain curiosities, so I want you to feel welcome to do that. But let's continue in the passage that we began from Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed and, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more value than the many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a, mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. 
Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is God's word. When I was in high school, uh, my brother and I were invited by John Erickson, uh, the father of Johnny Erickson, Tada, to come and ride uh, his horses. Uh, he had a horse farm in Sykesville, Maryland, uh, where he raised horses for equestrian competition. And Johnny used to compete before she broke her neck. And he said his horses needed to be ridden. I was never taught how to ride a horse, but that didn't bother him John Erickson uh, was an Olympic wrestler, and uh, one of his uh, stories was that when he was out in Colorado, uh, there was an avalanche of snow that covered him, and he, like, dug himself out. So he was, like, the toughest of tough kind of men. Uh, but he also had a huge heart and the biggest smile, and he was most generous, and he figured that I would learn. So I remember saddling up and mounting this beast named Sage. Uh, He was a really big horse. I felt this power beneath me as as Sage uh, snorted, and you could see uh, steam coming from his nostrils in that cold fall morning. And so we started out just a gentle walk through an open field, and then he moved into a graceful trot, and I, and I was riding this horse, and I said, I got this thing. And then all of a sudden, Sage jolted forward into a full gallop towards the woods before me, and we were flying, and I was holding on to my life, and uh, he never slowed down as he entered the woods, and I found myself ducking Uh, the branches as they whizzed by and as my head was getting scratched and it ripped off my hat. But then there was this one horizontal limb that was as big as a big man's arm that hit me smack in the chest. And before I could duck, I for sure thought I was going to go down. But the limb broke off clean because it was apparently rotten. Had it not been rotten, I probably would not be standing before you today. I'd be either dead or you know, and paralyzed. But one lesson that I learned that day was that if you ever find yourself on a horse running through the woods, get low. Place your head close to the head of the horse because the horse knows what's coming and the horse will always protect its head. And if your head is close to the horse's head, you'll be protected too. I tell you this story because Matthew 10 feels like mounting a really big horse that you have never learned to ride. It is so strong, so powerful, so full of life and adventure, but it is also full of real danger and risk. It feels really scary, and indeed, it is a life and death experience. And here in Matthew 10, that is precisely what Jesus is calling his disciples to, what he is calling us to, a life and death experience, a life and death mission. 
In many ways, the mission of bringing good news to the world, bringing a message of life and hope and peace, means that the disciples of Christ, the messengers of the good news of Christ, will face danger and self-denial and deprivations and even death. As Paul said, so then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Well, Jesus, he knows that he's speaking powerful and scary words to these disciples. These are hard words. So three times Jesus tells them in these verses, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. So don't be afraid, he says. Now, how can Jesus tell his disciples not to be afraid in the face of such hard teachings? Because Jesus is the Lord of the mission. Jesus, he's the sage of the ages. He is the Lord of history, the Lord of harvest. Right before Matthew 10, at the end of Matthew 9, it says that Jesus uh, went through the towns and the villages preaching the good news and healing every disease and sickness. And he tells his disciples that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray, ask the Lord of the harvest to send forth workers into the harvest field. And then chapter 10, Jesus answers their prayer, and he sends them out. He sends the 12 out. Uh, Jesus is on mission, and he calls his followers to mount up and to join him on this mission. Now, there's so much in this particular passage. We're not going to be able to cover all of these things, but I'd like us to consider three core things in this text. The essence of the mission, the expectations in the mission, and the engine for the mission, the essence of the mission. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. The essence, the substance, the heart of the mission of Jesus that he calls his disciples to, that he calls us to, is to present him, to represent him, to acknowledge him. He is the teacher. He's the master. We are presenting Jesus to the world. And how does Jesus come into the world? How does Jesus present himself to the world? Well, he is good news. He, is, he comes with good news. Jesus comes foremost with news of salvation. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so Jesus, he leads with compassion. And we find in that passage in, in Matthew 9 at the end that Jesus uh, looked upon the crowds and he had compassion on them. He was moved to the very depths of his being because he said these were like sheep harassed without a shepherd. And then he said to the disciples to go forth. You know, Jesus comes with compassion. That's how he enters. He doesn't enter with condemnation. And so he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out the demons. And when Jesus entered in Luke 4, uh, the inauguration of his ministry, he says the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. So the essence of Jesus, he comes with compassion. But he also comes with words of truth. He comes calling people to repentance. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe. So Jesus comes with this remarkable balance, uh, a, a balance of word and a balance of deed. He comes with good words, and he comes with good deeds, and he comes with this proclamation. And so Jesus tells us that's what the gospel 
he comes to present. And that is the presentation that we have to embrace and to hold that balance of deeds and words, words of truth and deeds of grace. Uh, Harvey Kahn wrote a book called Evangelism, which is uh, preaching grace uh, or doing justice and preaching grace. And that's, that's a, that, that, that dual spirituality of our ministry and our words have to be together. It's easy for churches to fall on one side or the other of that. You know, some churches uh, become just preaching stations, and they're just about proclaiming the truth, and they leave all the compassion to the government or other forces. But Jesus brings both word and deed. But some churches are like social service centers, and they all they do is just help people, but they never speak words of grace, of gospel news. And so it is important for the true gospel to be that presentation. So Jesus comes proclaiming good news, and he comes doing good news. But as he comes, he declares himself as the only savior of sinners. And that's what really brings a lot of hostility uh, towards Jesus as well as to any of those who would profess that. And so here Jesus blatantly uh, makes clear what bringing this mission and bringing this gospel will mean. And he gives the expectations in the mission. If they have called the master of the house, Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of the household? Now, this word, Beelzebub, is, was what Jesus was being accused of, which means the master of the house, which is actually the master of the house of Satan. And Jesus was calling you know, Jesus at the, as the master of Satan's house. And those who were following him, would be part of that household. And so Jesus, in essence, is saying in these verses, expect to be falsely slandered. Expect to be hated. Expect to be persecuted, even possibly by family members. Expect a cross. He says, do you think I've come to bring peace on the earth? No, I've come to bring a sword. And so... Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 5, when in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You know, every great enterprise or work of God will incite great opposition. So Jesus tells us to expect it. You know, he said, in this world you'll have trouble. Uh, Paul said, uh, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, Peter said uh, to the early church believers who were being persecuted, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as something strange were happening to you. One of the things I appreciate about Jesus is that he didn't like hold back what it was going to entail to be his follower. He just tells us. But you know, we get surprised when suffering hits us because we're being seeking to be faithful. It just doesn't feel right. I don't like people to hate me. I like people to like me. And I expect that, you know, people are reasonable. But here's the deal. Jesus said, people will falsely accuse you if you are holding to me. I remember years ago, we had a daycare center here when we first entered uh, this facility back in 1983. It was uh, the old York daycare center, and it was uh, here for years beforehand. And when we came into this facility, we felt like as a church was providing a, a strong service to the community. It was a federally funded program, but we felt like, well, let's continue to encourage this because it's serving uh, the families. And so for, for many years, it continued, but every single year, 
we didn't have any control and it was being mismanaged and the church actually had to keep bailing the daycare out and we recognized that we were being enablers of a of a unhealthy uh, service and so we basically had to let it go which meant that it had to close and I got an interview from one of the TV stations about this because we had you know pe parents that were upset that the daycare center was closing and a uh, a news reporter said listen we just want the truth just tell us the truth that's all we're not here to take sides I said great so this reporter gave me 20 minutes at least of an interview and I said well I really appreciated just the generosity and and how uh, this reporter just wanted my story and I feel like you know this was very reasonable we were the top story at the 11 o'clock hour that night and the headlines were church and daycare don't mix and it basically was a presentation that this church was against children and we looked horrible and the second story was uh, about Little Bo Peep daycare center up in Bel Air that had a sexual predator but it was the church and daycare was the top 11 o'clock story I said wow and here's the other part of that story they took that 20 minutes of wonderful interview and they found all the places that I looked like a total buffoon and a moron and stuttering and it was all packed in. I looked like an idiot and, I, and it was kind of a sober reminder, you know, uh, there are forces that will seek to make believers or Christian churches either, as well as they're trying to do look really horrible. And we know that. We, that's just the reality. That's, you know, the news stories about some kid getting killed in a church. I mean, those are the kind of stories that people will just look at and say, well, that's the church. But they don't know the true church. They don't know the true Christ of the church. But the reality is that Jesus warns that you will be falsely accused. And so we need to recognize that this is part of being his disciples and his witnesses. But Jesus raises uh, this, one of the highest levels of cultural attachments that we normally esteem and cherish, our families. He talks about uh, parents and children and the, the uh, division that will take place and that you know, children will hand their parents over the, to be arrested and, and, and vice versa. And it, he talks about these horrible breakdowns of relationships that we would ultimately treasure. And he says, if you love you know, your father, mother, your wife, or children more than me, you're not worthy of me. What is Jesus calling his disciples to? Well, he mentions this in a number of other places. Uh, he actually even used like the word hate. But when Jesus uh, makes the, the statement that you have to hate your parents, uh, he is basically saying, in comparison to your love and your devotion to me, all other loves, all the devotions have to pale in comparison. I have to be your first love. I have got to be your first love. Otherwise, you will bow to every other affection. And so Jesus, we know the scriptures, you know, he wants us to love our parents and to love our children and to love our spouses and the commandment, you know, honor your, your, your mother and your father. 
we know that Jesus and the scriptures are very consistent about the requirements and the call to love. But when he talks about in comparison to our devotion to him, he has got to be our top allegiance. But he talks about a cross. He talks about the cross that unless you take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. And the cross is that symbol of execution. It was a very radical picture. They knew what the cross meant. Uh, Jesus caused his disciples to unconditional surrender. A person taking up his cross is being led to death. A person taking up a cross is a person under arrest. You are not your own. And so uh, Tim Keller talks about how this image is really a subversive uh, in terms of going against the, the traditional culture, uh, which is when he brings up your family, uh, the family, your relationship to your family was the highest value in a particular culture. But Jesus is saying, but you have to love me more than all of these. But in an individualistic society where my life is my own, you have nothing to, you can't tell me what to do. Jesus says, well, you have a cross too. Nobody can tell me what to do, but a cross says, I am not my own. I am not in charge. And so Jesus, he hits all of those particular value systems, and he says, I've got to be the supreme. It's pretty audacious, you know, Jesus telling us that. But Jesus is telling his disciples, this is not a guarantee to an easy life. Jesus never promises his disciples that life would be easy. easy. Uh, I remember back in 2007, uh, Scott and Jennifer would send out newsletters, and they sent out this particularly hard uh, newsletter uh, titled Sorrows of 2007. They listed different things, war, disease, death and goodbyes, militant excursions led by insecurity, uh, near riots led to temporary school closure, long illness and thyroid surgery of key staff, two team families making decisions to move uh, from uh, Bundagabayo, uh, Ebola epidemic uh, considered the deadliest virus, and then the death of Dr. Jonah Kuhl. And it was an account of just heartbreaking that they were facing on this particular, in this particular year. And I really appreciate at the end, it says, we are a pair of docs working in Africa. Paradox, a seemingly absurd proposition, which when explained may prove to be true. Dying, that we might live. Becoming poor, that we might be rich. Strong in our weakness. Joyful despite suffering. Sinners yet saints. The apparent contradictions, but core truths. And so while they were facing death and real death and losses, God was breathing life through them. And the reality is, is that that is the nature of our call to discipleship. There's so much dying, there's denial, there's deprivations, but in the process, it's breathing life in the kingdom. And so Jesus is making it clear. But, you know, when you... Look at this passage, and by the way, I have to tell you, when I, I've struggled looking at this passage this week. This is a hard passage. This is so packed with so many hard statements. It's like all of the hard statements are just packed into this one chapter, and it's true. <laughs> For the most part, 
if you look at Luke's account, it's spread out. Uh, like a lot of these hard things are kind of spread out. But this became kind of like Matthew's, uh, you know, he's, he's a collector. You know, he's an, he, he kind of catalog, he, uh, catalogs things. And so he just like took all of the missional directives and he just packed them into this thing. And so if you're just reading this for the first time or if you're maybe a beginner follower or maybe you're just considering following Jesus and you read this, oh, uh, what's this? But here's the deal. Jesus didn't give these instructions until two years after his disciples were following him. They had spent all of this time. They, they hung out with him. They saw him heal. They experienced the miraculous catching of the fish and Peter walking on water and all of the meals and the wedding celebrations. And so when Jesus speaks hard truths, it comes with all of this backstory, all this history of grace. And so we must be careful not to read like this is just it. You need to see the full picture of Christ. But it's not enough just to, to know the, the hard things of this mission. In order for you to face the mission, you need to have the engine for the mission, the power in the mission. Uh, and so one of those engines that Jesus brings up is uh, verse 28. Uh, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who destroyed both body and soul in hell. And one pastor said, cheer up. All they can do is kill your body. You know, that's it. And then it's over. And then you, you're, you have eternal glory. So don't, you know, don't make a big deal about your death, in other words. But, you know, Jesus probably didn't see that. But he is... Con He's confronting his followers with their value systems that all of life that matters is what happens right here in this period of our 20, 30, 40, 50, 80, whatever years we have. Maybe 100. But in compared to eternity, that's nothing. And compared to heaven and hell, that is nothing. He says, fear him who can destroy body and soul in hell. So Jesus is talking about the supreme authority that we are to fear, and that fear is to worship. Whatever you fear, that's what you will bend to. Whatever you fear, that's what you will worship. And so the beginning of wisdom, the scriptures tell us, is the, is the fear of God. And John tells us that perfect love cast out fear. Okay? There's only one perfect love. There's only one perfect lover, and that's Jesus. And that's the one that we are to worship and to adore. But so we find the second thing that gives us an engine of grace is that you are precious to God. You are precious to God. And he talks about not, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And he talks about even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. And one commentator says that what is being raised here is the detailed awareness of God for the smallest and apparently the most insignificant things that nobody pays attention to, a spare that falls, the hairs of your head. But God considers these things. God sees them. Jesus said, God thinks about you so much that he has numbered the very hairs of your head. Do you know how many hairs are on your head? 
uh, well, the, what is it? The um, New World Encyclopedia says that the average human head, which is about 120 square inches, has about 100,000 hair follicles. And each follicle grows about 20 individual hairs in a person's lifetime. And the average hair loss is around 100 strands a day. Now, some of us have lost more hair than others. And my hair is getting more thin as it goes. And I would really like my hair back. You know, I would like my, my youth hair back. Now, I will get that back, by the way. And you will, too. Uh, you'll get all of that back and more. In fact, Jesus says he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. That's, what, that's the full restoration of your hair and anything that you've lost. So, But here's the point. God, he knows every hair that's still on your comb at home that you used this morning. He knows all of those. And he talks about the sparrows. He talks about the value of sparrows. And here he talks about, are not two sparrows uh, worth a penny? And in Luke's account, he talks about, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? And, and so he's given this analogy, you know, you get five for two pennies. And two, the penny was the smallest coin uh, in the Roman uh, currency. It was, like, worth a quarter of a penny or something. And, and so you put two little teeny pennies, the smallest coin you could buy, five sparrows. And it's kind of like a baker's dozen. You know, you, you buy a dozen, you get a 13th uh, donut or a bagel thrown in. But really, uh, they don't really consider that 13th really worth anything. But God considers even that third, even that fifth one that's not worth anything in the minds of the of, of the marketplace, God considers that nothing is lost to God. Not a hair on your head, not even a cheap sparrow. So we had this cat for 22 years, Prince, and uh, he was a Persian Himalayan mix. Our kids loved this cat. They grew up with this cat. And I confess that I came to love Prince too. God knows something about how a family can become attached to a domesticated animal. You know, that's how the prophet David, his heart got penetrated when Nathan had confronted him about his adultery with Bathsheba. Nothing else was getting through, but Nathan comes with this story about this little Yule lamb, this little baby lamb that would eat supper at this family's table, and the rich man uh, that owned the farm took the Yule lamb and slaughtered it and, and fed it to somebody, and David was outraged. And, of course, David says, you're the man. But the way he penetrated it was because he had this affection for this sheep. Of course, David was a shepherd. He, he, he grew up with sheep, and he loved sheep, and he understood the power of even a stupid lamb, a stupid sheep, a stupid cat, a stupid dog. I mean, some of you dog lovers would say, there are no stupid dogs. But what we find here, and I have to say, when we had the prince down, and I was the one that had to do that, uh, I remember that day, I, 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 you know, just out of whatever, I took some of, you know, 
prince's hair and put it in a little bag just as a reminder, a little memorial. I said, why in the world would something like that? And I don't like to get syrupy and, you know, sentimental over animals. But I can tell you that God, we are his image bearers. And anything that we feel sensitively like that, God feels so much more. This passage is telling us that he knows the very hairs of your head. He knows every sparrow that falls. He loves you to that point, and that's why he can say, don't try to secure your life, don't try to preserve your life, protect your life, fulfill your life, you know. Don't try to, you know, what is the, Ma what is the Maslow, you know, actualize your life. I've got your life. I've got your back. I've got your future. I have you. There's nothing about you that I don't see. There's no situation that I'm not involved in. I love you. I will be with you. You can trust me. And the cross that you bear, you're just living in the shadow of the cross that Jesus went to eternity and spent an eternity in hell as the infinite son of God so that you could expend your life eternally in the glory and the presence of a God that loves you to the very depths. And so Jesus says, don't worry. And these are wonderful encouragements, even though briefly that Jesus gives us in this passage. He says in verse 38, he does not say, whoever does not take up his cross is not worthy of me, or whoever loses his life will find it. Jesus said, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so what Jesus is saying, that the only way that you can do this hard discipleship is by following me, by focusing on me, by looking to me. Uh, when I looked at this passage, it virtually was crushing me. I said, how, you know, I don't have the capacity to do this calling. And then I was thinking, oh, and I'm a pastor, and I'm supposed to tell people that they're supposed to, like, die. And I don't feel I have the courage to do that. And the reality is, you don't either. I don't. But there's only one way that you and I can stand in the face of whatever comes at us because of our testimony for Christ, and that is because we're looking at Jesus. We're seeing his face. We're pursuing him. That means that we have to be in the scriptures. We have to fill our hearts with his word. We have to seek his face. You know, Psalm 27, where, where David says, um, he says, uh, what does he say? Psalm 27. This is a classic psalm. Where he opens and he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? He says, When the evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. But this is what he says. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to seek him in his holy temple. He says, my heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, O Lord, I seek. So, so when David gives us these words, the only power that he has is to face those foes is by seeking the face of God, by seeking the face of Jesus. And when you get your head 
close to the head of Jesus, when you put your face in his face and you can find his face and you can see his love and you can see his commitment to you and his love for you, then you can mount that mission and you can ride like the wind. You don't have to be afraid. He's got you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you give us this word, uh, hard teachings. Lord, these are tough, hard teachings. And Lord, there's lots of questions that I'm sure that these rays in many different ways. But God, we pray that you would take the, your word of truth and, and those things that are true and that you would penetrate and you would give strength and courage. Uh, you would fortify, that you would comfort. And any words that I've spoken that are out of truth, God, let, let them fall. And so, God, we commit uh, ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.